this. You know, we are uh, in the eighth week of an 11-week series. Uh, the time lapse between when we started and where we are right now is approximately two years. And actually, I'll, we will have an overview. Just look at the map today. I'm going to show you the map, uh, the journey that they have taken. It will come up in a bullet. Yeah. Give you a quick second to look at it. Their journey started from Egypt, north in the Nile Delta of Egypt, a specific city called Ramesses, which is named after a pharaoh. And the place is also called Goshen. And they started that journey, as you can see, they came south all the way, and there is the little crossing of Red Sea on top. You can see a, a tiny portion of it. That's where the Red Sea crossing happened. This is their traditional belief. And then they came all the way down, and that big circle is uh, Mount Horeb, where the Ten Commandments were given. And then they went all the way up again, and now they are in a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is the border of the Promised Land. And they are almost at the finish line. It is almost like you are driving to Canada. I don't know how many of you have driven to Canada. And when you go and you will see Niagara Falls, New York, and that's where you are, then you cross a bridge, then you are in Niagara Falls, Ontario, which is Canada. Both are Niagara Falls. It's the border city, and you are at the finish line, and all you need to do is now cross the border. You can take the map away. I just wanted to give you that picture of their uh, trip. Now, as I said, for them to reach this border, Kadesh Barnea, it took around two years. Now, to cross the border and reach the promised land, how many more years or how many more days, rather, would they have taken? Can you picture that in your mind? <laughs> See, there is a verse in Deuteronomy where it says um, the, the place from, the, the, the distance from Mount Horeb all the way at the bottom where they were given the Ten Commandments to Kadesh Barnea was 11 days, 11 days journey. So the whole journey, maybe for an individual, would be 11 plus another 11 from Goshen to Mount Horeb. Let's take it a month, right? A month, it's, it's only a month worth of journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. But obviously, you're going in a caravan, all these people, and all your property. So it might take a while, and it took them almost two years. That's fine. They finally reach the finish line. But to cross the finish line and to take over the promised land, it took another 38 years. Can you believe that? Up to the finish line, two years, that's where we are now. Now to cross over and to inherit the promised land, it took another 38 years. Now this is one of the biggest tragedies in the whole Exodus story. And the reason can be traced back to 
one specific event, actually one specific decision. It was really a yes or no decision that cost Israel 38 years, ended up losing the whole generation of people who started from Israel. A simple decision. Now I'm going to read that particular passage today, but before that I'm going to set you up, you know, because there were too many verses, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll set up the story. So this is what happens. When they reached Kadesh Barnea, Moses decided to send a reconnaissance team to the promised land, and there were 12 spies sent out to spy out the land. These 12 people went there, hidden of course, and then they came back with the report. They were there for 40 days. Now that number will be very important as we go later. They were there for 40 days, studied the land, and came back with a report to Moses. And in general, what they, the report they gave was, this is a great fertile land flowing with milk and honey. No question about the fact that this is the promised land. Problem, however, <laughs> is that the people who live in that land are giants. Which are which basically people of big stature, Vikings or whatever we, we want to call it, contemporary, you know, we, we want to contextualize it. And also their cities are fortified. So as great as the promised land is, as wonderful as the promise is, this is it. There is no way we are going to go forward. Let us go back to Egypt and apologize to Pharaoh for all this mess up and go back. They decide, you know, that was this decision. So there was this big confusion that erupted at the table of Moses. Twelve spies came back and ten of them, ten of them said, go back, that's the only thing we can do. Then there are two guys who are in their 30s or 40s, <laughs> which are like the real junior high back in the days, you know, with the, and so these guys said, no, no, it is true that the land is fortified. It is true that the people are giants, but the Lord is with us and his promise is with us. This is the land which flows with milk and honey. This is the promised land. We are going to go and take over. So Moses is confused and he is sitting on this decision-making table with the 10 people saying, no, don't go forward, we will go backward. And two people say, no, let's go and inherit our promise. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word today? We are in the book of Numbers, and the first passage is from Numbers Chapter 13, I'm reading from verse 30 onwards. Then Caleb 
quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now we are going to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27, verses 21 onwards. Here is another, even more critical decision making. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, seated. I just want you to know that these passages and the texts were selected way back when I was planning this series at least three or four months ago. But it is eerily similar to what we are going through, I mean, what I am going through in a way, because it might sound like Moses is like a senior pastor <laughs> presiding over a 12-member ministry council <laughs> and trying to make a decision, okay? And we have a 12-member ministry council. <laughs> um, and um, I just want you to know that Actually, I think I should read a disclaimer, right? I don't want you to. So this is from my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> the characters and events depicted in this sermon are not, well, they are not fictitious, but they are from the Bible. <laughs> Any similarity to other persons living or dead is purely coincidental, okay? <laughs> It's not from a lawyer, I just copy pasted from a movie slide, you know, when the movie stars they show, so. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, people wonder, you know, I mean, when I was 
before I was a pastor, I used to wonder how are decisions being made in a church, especially in a big church with complex layers of um, different um, uh, uh, persuasion and ideologies and inputs and all that. So let me, let me take you to a passage where one of the most crucial decisions in the New Testament or one of the most important decisions in the early church was made. Now, this is right after the ascension of Jesus. All the disciples gathered and they sat around and they noticed one thing. There is a seat empty. There were a 12 member, just like that. They had a 12 member ministry council too, 12 apostles. And one of them happened to be Judas. And you know what happened to him. And so they wanted to fill that position, right? Now, that's a serious, serious decision. So, they decided, in Acts chapter 1, if you go, you'll get all the details. So, they decided to nominate two people, exactly following our process, right? They nominated two people, one person, his name is Justice, and the other person's name is Matthias, okay? They nominated these two people. Actually, I'll read that verses. Acts chapter 1, verses 24 to 26. So they nominated these two people, and uh, this is what they did. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the Lord fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, how many of you really knew that the 12th selected apostle was Matthias? How many of you really even heard his name? Some of you, some of you. Honestly, I didn't know. <laughs> for a long time. Because when you really study Matthias, he was a great guy, and you know, there is only legends and half history about him, you know. But, but we don't generally, the church circle don't regard him as the 12th apostle, even though he was selected through a very legitimate process, which at that time was nomination and casting the lot. Actually, Peter said, Peter was at a very low point in his life. He just denied the master. He lost the credibility among the apostles. And now the other apostles also don't have credibility. They all ran away when Jesus was crucified. So at that table, maybe a little bit of voice is only with John, who at least followed Jesus up to the, up to the cross. So they were at a very low point in their spiritual life. So they decided that, you know what, we don't want to just recommend somebody and push for somebody's name. So that might be perceived politically incorrect. So they come, came up with a legitimate process. Let's nominate two people and then cast the lot, which is their way of giving it to God. Now, that's very debatable if you want to study that. That's not the point. The point I'm trying to make is the person who was chosen, Matthias, was the choice of the church. 
Now, was that the choice of God? We don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe he was not. But it was their choice. He came through a legitimate process too. But the irony is that, like I said, in most church circles and, you know, among pastors or among theologians, we almost always consider Paul as the 12th apostle. You know, Paul is considered an apostle. Paul is famous than all other disciples combined in a way. You can see an anointing of apostleship resting on Paul. So Paul became that very, very important figure, at least in church history, and quite often he is described as the 12th apostle, not Matthias. Now what happened? Because the process, as legitimate as it is, for God to act on it, at that time, Paul was in the opposite lobby. Paul was the persecutor of the church. The anointed one, at their timing, was the other, the ultimate other. What if I tell you that there is a possibility <laughs> that the next senior pastor of Lake Avenue Church might be the president of Atheist Association of America right now. <laughs> I don't know. Or what if I tell you the next senior pastor might be <laughs> the Politburo chair of Communist Party in China? It might very well be because you are playing with God. You are playing with God who does not confirm to our, pro our, our processes. Our ideas, our theories, that's the problem when we play with God. Doesn't that mean that processes are not important? It is important. It is extremely important. But the thing is, when you play with God, always ready to be surprised. Always ready to be <laughs> surprised, right? That's why we call him God. Now... <laughs> Now, casting the Lord, I don't, I don't want to say too much about it because casting the Lord is, in a way, kind of evading the responsibility. You know, I don't want to recommend any name so that I don't want him to be considered a Pastor Matthew's candidate or this candidate. So just luck, just, uh, you know, the luck or <laughs> Holy Spirit in, in this case. We kind of somehow shirk the responsibility, and that almost always happens in traditional decision-making in, in spiritual circle or in churches. So I recently read a book uh, written by Jim Collins. I don't know how many of you know him. He's not a Christian. He's a leadership guru, and he has written a book called Good to Great, which became popular, and his latest book, B, I think Beyond Entrepreneurship, B 2.0, or something like that, um, and in which... And he talks about four types of group decision-making. How do you make decisions in a group? And that's what happens in church, where everybody has to have a voice, which is very important. And, uh, you know, secular wisdom, some people say, well, why should we learn from secular people about this? This is not a secular wisdom or sacred wisdom, because church, unfortunately, in, in, in our context, is not just governed by the laws of the scripture. We are also governed by the laws of California, and we are also governed by the laws of the United States. So we are also accountable to the state and the federal governments. What I'm trying to say is that even though we say our church is completely surrendered to God's will, even though we say that, technically we say that we are still 
accountable to the local authorities because church has a dual nature or a hybrid identity in some way. So sometimes some of the reflections of secular wisdom is in a way interesting. So I was just, uh, you know, I'll just give you what I, what I learned from Jim Collins' four types of group decision-making models. And the first one, he calls it a delegative model, delegative model. A delegative model is where the leader comes and pushes the decision on to his team. The team makes the decision. The leader says, you make, the leader says, you make the decision, I'll put my stamp on it, okay? That is generally a favorite model for most of the pastors because it's kind of, you know, we are not really trained in seminary circles to be, to lead big organizations and entities. We are taught to preach the scripture, dissect it, and you know, uh, how, to, uh, how to do spiritual formation for people. That's the kind of things we are trained to. And when we look at big budgets and big buildings, and we are not literally trained to do that, so it is much easier for us to say that, okay guys, you make the decision, and I'm a pastor, I'll say yes to what you say. It's a delegative model, very favorite, but the problem though, is that when, when a decision goes to the team, according to him, you know, and not according to him, and this is a general practice, in a team, there will always be some opinionated people. And quite often, quite often, right, quite often, that vocal minority controls the decision-making process. They will be quick to speak, they will be louder, they will be faster, and they will be more strong in their opinions. So the opinion kind of drives in that way, and the other people, particularly in a church, want to be polite and don't want to intervene. And so, delegating model ends up actually become very biased, and the pastor becomes like a puppet in a way, right? Like, you know, the pastor says yes to whatever you say. That's one model, delegative model. And the second model, he says, autocratic model, autocratic. Now, you know what that means, where the pastor or the leader says that I am going to make the decision. I am the one. I am the senior pastor, okay? I will ask you, I will ask you for information. I don't want your suggestion. I don't want your opinion. I don't want your evaluations. I don't want your comparison. I don't want your strategies. I just want information. Give me information and I will make the decision, okay? Now, this happens quite a lot in churches we call mega churches and quite often the churches were generally named after pastor's name rather than church name and tend to happen. And as you um, probably know, there's Christianity Today has, has a podcast called on Mars Hill Church and some of this, the abuse of power where pastor becomes this autocratic leader, a dictator, and the whole congregation and the leadership will become puppets. It's just the opposite of the delegative decision-making model, which is definitely, definitely not healthy. Now, this third one is generally popular, is called consensus model or pure consensus. That's what he calls. But it is not practical, where leader goes to the team 
and says that I am very interested in what you all think, and he tried to form, it's more like in the political circle, they, they tried to draw consensus of opinion among the team. But pure consensus in so many ways is a myth. It's very difficult to get all of them agreed, like in a jury duty kind of thing where all of them has to agree. So often it ends up in a mistrial, right? So pure consensus doesn't really happen, but that's one model. But we would, from our spiritual perspective, we will call this pure consensus model murmuration. You remember the word I taught you when I joined? It's called murmuration. Murmuration is when the Holy Spirit possesses the team, including the leader, and create a pure consensus where everybody is of same mind, or if I use the Bible language, they were of the same accord, and there is only one solution that is very obvious to everybody. Now, you wonder, why doesn't, why is not happening that? Why is not, why doesn't that happen all the time in church circle? Well, part of the reason why murmuration doesn't happen all the time, already told you, church in today's world is a hybrid entity. See, the whole, for the Holy Spirit to come in, the Holy Spirit, as I taught you last week, is Kodesh. It is set apart. The Holy Spirit is not going to abide by the laws of the state or the laws of the federal government or the systems and the procedures we have set up. Not that the Holy Spirit will not, but that should not be a mandatory consign, a, a, a mandatory requirement for the Holy Spirit to come in. So the hybrid nature of a church, particularly in the Western world, has made it immensely difficult for murmuration to happen. And you will see murmuration happen all the time in other countries like India, where church is of same accord, or in China, where the church is of same accord, and they have this guidance of the Holy Spirit because they are not particularly accountable to the government. For example, if you put money in the basket in a church in India, you will not get tax receipts. We don't want to give you tax receipt. That means that we have to be accountable to the government. And the, for murmuration to happen in our churches, we have to let go of some of the privileges we have. How many of us are willing to say that, you know what, I don't want a tax receipt for my donation? So then we can detach slowly from the government. Then we can attach completely to, completely to God. And then, and only then, we will get murmuration. And also, <laughs> there are other things. Like since I'm talking about the secular wisdom and wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the man trying to combine is very difficult when it comes to murmuration. For example, a funny story, you know, whenever we form a committee to decide something, there is this unwritten rule that we will pick odd numbers. Right? <laughs> we were thinking about, I'm not going to disclose details, but we are talking about forming a committee, and they said, whoa, yeah, yeah, so how about six people? No, we need to have seven. Oh, why, how about eight people? No, we need to have nine. Because if there is a, <laughs> if there is a disagreement, there has to be a vote, and we have to, we have to have odd numbers to clear that up. Right? So the point is that we are going into the decision making with an amount of skepticism already. See, that makes for the Holy Spirit to work. Having said that, I am also a part of that. I also believe that we should have 
odd numbers in the committee because we have to have appropriate methods and procedures. So I'm not questioning any of this. But do you see, even when we say this kind of things, we are actually expressing our distrust in the possibility of murmuration to happen. And there are so many other good things. And we always talk about, yeah, and I, I am the one. This is not anybody saying that when we form a committee or when we form a team, we need to have a representative of a young adult. We need to have a representative of a senior citizen. We need to have some women in the, in the group. We need to have a people of color in this group. These are all wonderful, wonderful things. So we will keep doing all of this. But the question is, where does that come from? What if, what if God decides that there will be only six women in the next committee? That's if, what is, that, that is what God decides. Or if, what if God decides the next committee will have nine black people? That's all what God is going to decide. Who am I to say that there has to be something else? Because it's not in the Bible, but it is a good practice for us to diversify our outlook. So there is nothing wrong with the procedure itself. What I'm trying to say is we kind of unvariably and think, you know, uh, unknowingly mix the wisdom of the world with wisdom of God. And, and sometimes we need to do that as I am doing it right now. I'm talking to you from secular wisdom. But all I am saying is that this is why murmuration doesn't happen all the time. In that kind of environment for the Holy Spirit to break out, we should be at a desperate decision-making point. And when we go to the, when we do all this decision, try all this decision-making model, and at the end we go to God and say, Lord, we failed. There is no way we can arrive at this decision. We messed up. Sorry. We need your breakthrough. Then, and only then, the Holy Spirit shows up and does the murmuration. Right? So, <laughs> so according to Jim Collins, he says, the most practical of all the decision-making models is the fourth model. He calls it participative decision-making. Participative decision-making. What he means by participative decision-making is where the leader goes to the team and asks for not just information, ask for their input, ask for their ideas, Ask for their strategies. Is there alternate ways of doing this? And really take their feedback. But at the end, the leader makes his or her own decision. And the leader will keep himself or herself accountable to that particular decision he or she is making. Even though the ideas come from the group, the responsibility of the decision-making goes to the leader and says that I am making the decision. I will stand by this decision. And any mistake, I will own this. And that's what a participative decision-making model. And according to Jim Collins, that's the most practical of, what, of all the group decision-making models. And that might be a little tricky for us to understand. So I was thinking this analogy, you know, because it sounds like, especially me being a senior pastor, it's almost embarrassing to say that I'm kind of making a claim about, this is what I'm going to do, whether you like it or not. That's the way it's going to come through. I know that. I know. I'm hearing it from your, through your ears. So I'm going to, I'm going to lighten this up, <laughs> okay? See, you know the movie Spider-Man you saw, you know? And in that Spider-Man, there is a very famous line. 
with great power comes great responsibility. You remember that? Marvel Comics made that very popular. I'm pretty sure that was said sometime before too. But Spider-Man, you know, the Uncle Ben is the one who's saying that. With great power comes great responsibility. Now the reality is that the reverse is also true. With great responsibility comes great power. I'll say that one more time. With great responsibility comes great power. See, even though we are all equal in a church, or even though we are all equal in a decision-making setting, and particularly in a congregation church, we all don't have the same responsibility. We all have the same right, <laughs> but we all don't have the same responsibility. I'll tell you, the most uncomfortable point in my last six months of being a senior pastor was I was asked to sign a series of mortgage documents. We just changed our mortgage for this facility to one from one bank to another bank. So I had to go to a downtown office of the lawyers and all that, and they asked me for my social security number. They asked me for driver's license, and they presented me with this all oh, the so many documents I had to sign. Believe me, I don't have a mortgage. One, one of the reasons we don't own a house is I don't, I, I don't like to be in debt. I know that's not the right thing. It's okay to have a mortgage. What I'm trying to say is that I don't like signing mortgage document. But I had to. <laughs> it was a series of documents and so I signed. Uh, man, like, and I haven't done this in a long time, but I had to do it because I am responsible for this entity. My signature was there. I thought it was done. Then they said, no, it's not done. We need your thumbprint too. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> I thought I can at some point, no, somebody faked it. I didn't do this or something like that. No, we need your thumbprint too. They literally took my thumbprint all over that document. Now I'm telling you, this is no joke. All of you are equal here. <laughs> all, of you, all of your opinions are welcome here. They are equally important. But you can make a decision. You can argue for a decision. And when it goes wrong, you can go to another church and ask if nothing ever happened. It happens in churches all the time. People argue for a decision, make this decision, and then when the things doesn't really fit the way they want it to fit, then they can go to another church. But I am stuck here, okay? I am stuck here. <laughs> My thumbprint is in every document. It keeps me awake at night. <laughs> so the point I'm trying to make is, when you have great responsibility, the person with the maximum responsibility has the ultimate say in what the decision is being made. That is a natural law. Does that make sense? Now, I just want you to know that I'm not saying it in a silly way. The decision Moses had to make at that point, it baffles me. It cost the Israelites 38 years of their journey, one simple decision. Moses is presiding at the table. Ten people say yes, sorry, no, don't go. And two people say yes, let's go. 
and Moses. At that point, Moses had the right to say yes, even though it was a minority report. Moses was the appointed leader. Moses was the anointed leader. He knew that he had that power, but he did not want to say it because he was a little afraid. He thought, oh, you know what? I'm just tired of this bickering. I'm tired of this, this crying out of the people and rebellion of the people, so I am going to go with the majority decision. Now that cost 38 years, and they lost an entire generation. God said, I am going to punish you for this. For the 40 days, the spies, you know, spied out the land. According to that, you will be stuck in this Sinai Peninsula, that desert, for 40 years. 40 days I gave you to see the future, see the beauty of the land, and you disbelieve me, so you are going to stack. For every day you spend there, I am going to give you every year as punishment. So they were stuck there for 40 years. See, this is the danger in decision-making process. The minority report, driven by Faith is almost always overruled by the majority decision driven by fear. Because the majority looks for popular opinion. They look for familiar things. They look for comfort. They look for safety. But the minority says that let's go and possess the land. And that is a narrative created by faith. And it is incumbent upon Moses as the leader to go with the minority report driven by faith. Because that is where the promise is. I would like to speak on and on about this, but you know the way the popular opinion shifts the narrative, the last verse in the passage we read, this is what they say. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. And this people went there, and the spies went out and found all these beautiful things in the land, and then at the end, they said, this is what it says, we became like grasshoppers, which means that we felt like we were so small in our own sight, not in their sight. So read that very carefully. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. See, how we perceive ourselves will be how the others perceive us too. Quite often, some of this is a self-esteem issue. Culture pushes a narrative on us, saying that Christians are bad, Christians are colonialists, Christians are this, and Christians are that. And we being the nice Christians we are, we try to embrace the self-criticism, which is important to a certain extent, but if we embrace it too much, there was a time when we say Christianity, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person. Very often people say, because Christianity is not a religion, which is true. Christianity is an experience for me. So I don't want to say that I'm a Christian religion, religious people. Now people say, I don't even want to say I'm a Christian because Christian has bad connotation in the culture. So I'm, I'm going to call myself a Christ follower which is all fine, which is all fine. But the point is that who are we afraid of? At some point, we will run out of excuse. And I, some people, sometimes we say, I don't want to call myself an evangelical because there's a bad connotation in the culture about evangelicals. That's right. 
because media keeps portraying evangelical. So I am very proud to say that I am an evangelical Christian. That's who I am. I believe that. I believe in the value of evangelism. That doesn't mean that I'm, I support the moral majority or the Jerry Falwell or, or the American twisting of the evangelicalism. But the point I'm trying to make is, at some point, we need to realize that how we perceive ourselves, how much self-critical can we be? And how, if we think that we are like grasshoppers in this culture, we are a nobody in this culture, nobody takes us seriously, then yes, nobody will take you seriously. They will think that you are grasshoppers. This is the narrative driven by fear. That's not by faith. That's a public opinion in social media all over is telling us that we need to go with the majority decision or the popular opinion. But the moment you choose to be with God, I want you to know that. The moment you choose to be with God, you become a minority. You might be whatever label they put you, you know, white male, whatever they put you, whichever label you are. The moment you choose to follow Jesus, you become a minority. Jesus said, small is the gate and narrow is the road <laughs> that lead to life. The moment you become a Christian, you enter into a group of minorities, a narrow road, and that makes us a family. It doesn't matter what your politics is. It doesn't matter the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter your education, but we are all part of this minority report driven by faith and say that the Lord has offered us the promised land. Let us go and possess it and let us walk through that narrow land. I want to shift the scene very quickly to the praetorium of Pilate. Pilate is looking at two people, Jesus and Barabbas. Both are condemned criminals. But Pilate looks at Jesus. There is something about Jesus. There is something about Jesus. He really, really wants to help Jesus. You can see that the whole passage. He really wants to get Jesus out of this mess. And he wants to free Jesus. And he's trying different method. And then he gives the option. He delegates the option to the public and say, which one you want? Jesus or Barabbas? Now I'm telling you. This is the most critical decision you are going to make in your entire life. The first decision about the Canaan and the Kadesh Barnea, it only cost 38 years for Israelites. But this decision is going to cost you eternity. Your eternity literally hangs on what you are going to say in answer to this question, Jesus or Barabbas? And there... Pilate is. Every single person in the room is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. At least Moses had two people. Moses had two people to say, yeah, let's go. And Pilate at that moment, at that episode, there's nobody who is supporting Pilate. He only had the voice of conscience. He only had the voice of conscience. But at the end, he said, 
I'm now going to take responsibility for the decision I'm going to make. And he switched to a delegative decision-making model, and that cost him his eternity in so many different ways. And all I wanted to say is that, my brothers and sisters, irrespective of what's going to happen in the world and happen in the culture, how you are going to approach the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, that is the most crucial decision you can make and you have never made that decision. You might have been in church for so long and so many times and you've been part of decision-making models in churches and outside, but if you are afraid of saying yes to Jesus because the whole world tells crucify him, cru cru crucify him, don't make the mistake of following the majority decision. Be with the minority. And that minority, even if that minority is just the voice of your conscience, even if there is nobody in your family, even if there is nobody in your office or in your circle who just appreciate and accept Jesus, but you still have that voice in your conscience, that is Jesus. That should be your answer. Whatever the price you are willing to pay, and whatever he is asking you to do, let us enter this narrow road. Because it is the road that leads us to the everlasting life. Your eternal destiny is at stake. It is not about 38 years. Your eternal destiny is at stake. And would you say yes to Jesus? Unless and until you do that, he is going to take you through this desert until every unbelieving person in you, in the fiber of your being, dies out. That is the purpose of the desert. The purpose of the desert is a purifying agent. <laughs> because these unbelieving people, God pledged that day, these people, this generation will not enter the promised land. Out of the 600,000 people who started the journey, there were only two people. Only two people in the first 600,000 who entered the promised land. That happened to be Joshua and Caleb, these two people who said yes. Even Moses couldn't enter the promised land. Now that is the power of the desert. The desert is going to get you. The desert is going to purify you unless and until you say yes to the decision of faith and no to the sound of fear. Let's say a prayer. Father God, take us forward. Oh, we have temptation to go backward and go back to Egypt and beg apologies to Pharaoh and get back to our normal life. Oh, how much we wish if we were with our friends and families and just have been a party and enjoy life as it comes to us. But Lord, here we stand at Kadesh Barnea, right at the border. And we don't want to make that mistake Moses made. <laughs> we don't want to make that mistake the whole crowd except those two people made. So we want to be this noise-making Joshua and Caleb who argues for the voice of the minority who are on the narrow road to the promised land. Oh Lord, bless us. Oh Lord, keep us. Give us strength to follow the narrative of faith, not fear. Help us to go forward, not backward. In Jesus' name. Amen.